Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. It is not often that you get to discuss the books you love with an author you revere, but that is exactly what I got to do in today's podcast. In this episode, I talked with Dr. Alan Jacobs about his new book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind. Dr. Jacobs is what I want to be when I grow up, a humanities professor who writes insightful books with delicious prose in his spare time. Having written over 15 books and contributing regularly to places like The Atlantic and First Things, Dr. Jacobs has revived the tradition of the Christian intellectual, helping people draw the lines between theology, philosophy, and literature with what's happening in the world today. Today, we talked about how old books can bring us both wisdom and tranquility, and near the end, I even got to ask his thoughts about my most recent literary obsession, Susanna Clarke and her new book, Piranesi. This conversation was as cozy and intellectually stimulating as a strong cup of Yorkshire gold tea. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Interrogate the writings of the wise, asking them to tell you how you can get through life in a peaceable, tranquil way. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. On today's show, we're going to be exploring the benefits and perils of a reading life, of inviting the thinkers of the past to speak to our present confusions, and the practices which can come to form our habits of thinking and living and figuring out life. And I am so excited to invite a very fascinating, um, admirable figure who has spent a lot of his career kind of helping people enter into the thinkers and readers in the past and the practice of reading to chat with me about that today. And that is Dr. Alan Jacobs. Welcome. Thank you, Joy. It's great to talk with you. Um, so I am so excited to chat today. I could I could begin in many places, but why don't we just start with um, give a, a brief kind of picture of yourself and what you spend your days doing and caring about. Sure. So uh, I teach at in the honors program at uh, Baylor University in Waco, Texas. I've been here for seven years. Uh, before that, I spent twenty nine years teaching at Wheaton College in Illinois. And um, I am a professor of humanities here, which um, describes what I do pretty broadly. <laughs> um, I, I, my, my classes are, a lot of them are in the kind of great texts tradition. Um, I do some, my, my, my PhD is in English, but I also teach philosophy and theology and just get to the, the enormous blessing of being able to to teach a wide range of books, most of them uh, from the fairly distant past, though some of them from the more recent past. 
and then I write uh, when I have time to do that. But I think maybe one thing that's a little unusual about me as a as a writer or as a as an academic writer is that I always have thought of myself first and foremost as a teacher. And a lot of my books really grow out of my experience as a teacher and try to translate that experience into terms that would be useful to my readers. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is what I have so enjoyed about your books. Um, and is it's something it's a little bit what I want to be when I grow up. Um, something I, I love so much about the way that you write is that it's that kind of wonderful and rare combination of you are you are scholarly, you have spent years um, researching and writing for the scholarly community, but then you're able to take that and give that back to people in a way that is um, understandable and appealing and and useful and helpful. And I think that that teacherliness um, comes through in your writing in a way that's really uh, delightful and, as I said, appealing. Um, so I'm I'm excited to chat with you. And that's also part of what I, I part of why I started this podcast was a desire to kind of take some of these ideas, some of the riches of literature and philosophy and theology, and um, and put it back out into the world in the way that people can kind of not only get it, but also become people who know how to get it for themselves, um, which is fun and exciting. Yeah. I, I also appreciate um, just the breadth of the things you talk about, because I always have a hard time making myself be, um, you know, academia really kind of makes you want to pigeonhole yourself into very specific things. Mm -hmm. um, but there are so many wonderful things one could talk about. And there is a, a lovely generalism that I think... Um, is is fun to me um, that I think some of your books get into. So I wanted to ask you first, you've just come out with a book um, within the last month um, and I, called Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind. And that, that quote that I opened up with um, was, of course, a passage, is it from Horace? Yes. yes. <laughs> and um, so I wanted to ask you a bit about that book and what inspired it. Yeah, so that was a book that I started thinking about, um, really, I think, even as I was putting the final touches to an earlier book called How to Think, which came out in 2017. And that was a book, uh, How to Think was a book that I wrote just as the um, the presidential campaign of 2016 started to heat up. Mm. And I, I just saw people not thinking very well <laughs> and getting really agitated and emotional and defensive and prone to mischaracterize the views of others. And, and I thought that in my years of teaching, I had learned a lot about the ways in which thinking can go wrong and uh, how those problems might be addressed. And I thought, you know, this would be a good time for me to write not so much as a scholar, not so much as a Christian, because those are ways in which I often write, mm. but rather to think of myself primarily as a citizen mm. and, um, and try to find a word that would be helpful to my fellow citizens at a time of increasing tension and anxiety and anger. Mm. And, but even as I was, you know, finishing up the book, one of the things that I felt that I had maybe neglected, at least to some extent, was 
um, what what can be done to to sort of break the habits of instantaneous emotional response hmm. to whatever happens to be coming across your newsfeed, and and that was not getting better after <laughs> 2016, but was in fact getting worse and has reached a kind of a fever pitch now. And 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 you know I, one of the one of the ways I sometimes describe this is to say that everyone who has ever had to raise children or deal with children knows that it really doesn't work just to tell them no don't do x you need to be able to say do y instead mm. do z instead you need to be able to give them some alternatives to the annoying or dangerous thing that they're <laughs> doing and and i think that's ju that's just as true of grown-ups as it is of kids right you we it's one thing to say um, you know, don't be on Twitter so much. Don't be on Facebook so much. <laughs> but but what are you going to do instead? And I think there are many things that you could do. But one of them that I think is especially useful is this consulting the voices from the past, hearing the voices from the past. I, I, I'm glad that you started with that Horace quote, because he's a sort of an interesting case in point, because Horace is a guy who was who was really wrapped up in some fairly serious ways with Roman politics um, at a time when Roman politics was way more heated than our politics, uh, mm. you know, right now. And, and ended up, you know, making a, a, a new life for himself in the countryside. Mm. And that's where he was. He's living away from Rome. He's not in the middle of all of the, the political disputes and the political violence in some mm -hmm. cases. Instead, he is just he's he's made time for himself to think. And so he's writing to his friends. These are a lot of his his poems or letters, uh, verse epistles. And he's writing to his friends and he's saying, hey, try what I'm doing. Uh, you know, spend your time interrogating the 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 thoughts of the wise you know mm -hmm. converse with them uh, debate with them listen to them and reflect on what they say and if you do that then you can have a less agitated and more tranquil mind mm -hmm. and i think what he learned from experience is what i would like for a lot of people to learn from experience mm -hmm. and it's certainly something that has helped me and i want to recommend that to my fellow citizens and hope that just as things get more and more and more intense politically, there is a greater and greater need for stepping back and, mm -hmm. and immersing yourself in something that is more likely to give you tranquility rather than an ulcer. <laughs> I am generally in favor of increasing my likelihood of tranquility since my likelihood of ulcer is already pretty high. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, it's, I love the way that you kind of introduce this as, and the way that Horace talks about it, as this conversation, this kind of ongoing conversation um, with people alive, but also with the wise and with and with the past. Um, our, my theme for this, this, um, I always want to say my semester of podcasts because I'm so ingrained with academic time, um, but this, this yeah. season is conversations because I think that... Um, the ability to converse, to listen, to to try to argue and figure out what is right and what is wrong is something that is increasingly difficult in our world. And I think part of it is this inability to kind of listen with charity and and listening with charity. That's this is something I always try to impress on my students, especially when it's first year and they're starting to read texts and they 
oftentimes, I'm sure you have experienced this with years and years and years of students, that oftentimes when you first start as a reader or as a university student, you come to things with this kind of defensive, um, ready to have your opinion and, and tear it down um, when they read text. But I always try to say, you need to begin this um, with a with a sense of charity. You need to try to read people and understand fully what it was that they meant. Uh, and only when you're able to do that, when you're able to inhabit the mind of a reader, are you able to really kind of then know what they were fully arguing and be able to respond to it and understand it. And so I always think of, of you know, having these intro to theology class with the students as kind of inviting them into the conversation that has been taking place for thousands of years. And I think that trains us to have kind of a different mode of engaging with reality and of um, of considering things. And it makes us realize that many of the things that we get so agitated about, people have been agitated about for low thousands of years. And um, and it's helpful, I think, to engage with that. But one of the things that I, I think is um, perhaps stops people sometimes is this kind of idea in their heads that every every book from the past is, you know, the catchword problematic, right? That there's, you know, whoever you find, there will be some sense in which they were sexist or racist or something. And so we sometimes are have this tendency to not look back and to actually listen to the voices of the past, um, to the voices of the wise. So what are what are some answers, some kind of thoughts you would give to someone who has a tendency not to listen to the voices of the past because it's a, of a suspicion of their, you know, thoughts on modern things. Yeah. And you're, you're right to say modern things. There, there is a, um, because I think what we are, uh, and I think social media is the primary contributor to this. We are so present minded now mm. that is the, 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 whatever the themes or the issues or the questions of uh, of this particular moment are, mm. those are, it's kind of uh, for a period that's all we can think about, you know, mm. I, and I remember years ago, people were, there was this sense that if you were not talking about men abuse, uh, men in power abuse that power to take advantage of women, then then you were really being irresponsible. And and now here two two and a half years later, it's if you're not weighing in on the racial issues, mm. then that are reflecting our society, then you're really really irresponsible. But you know, what if two or three years ago, what you were really focusing on was racism in America? That would have been a totally legitimate thing to focus on. Mm -hmm. What if uh, now what you're, you're still focused on the men abusing their power to dominate and sexually harass women. Cause that's still happening. That mm -hmm. hasn't stopped happening over the last two and a half years, but there is this sense, this, this enormous pressure to kind of unanimity. Everybody mm -hmm. has to be talking about the same thing, which means that everybody has to drop the previous thing, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the previous thing was, we have to drop that. And we're being we're being driven by we we are it's a version of what the apostle Paul says when he talks about people being blown about by every mm. wind of doctrine. You know, mm -hmm. whatever the new wind of doctrine is, that's what we're being blown about by. And what that what what that does there's a lot of things to us, but in relation to your question, what it does to us is is make us focus with a kind of maniacal intensity on just one particular thing, mm. uh, one particular way in which you can either be right or wrong, and there's not any mm -hmm. anything in between. 
And, and we're not putting all of our concerns into play. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that some people say is, well, when you're reading the past, you have to set aside your own views. And I don't believe that. I don't mm-hmm. think you should ever set aside your own views. I just don't think you should. In, in fact, I would go further and say, I don't think you should set aside any of your views. That is, don't just judge people according to one particular topic or one particular standard because that's what everybody's talking about right now Hmm. bring everything into play bring into play all the things that you care about um, many of which people are not talking about right now Hmm. and in that way i think you can have a much richer conversation you're able to see and you know and by the way you you were right to say that there are a lot of students who whose attitude coming into a class is, you know, what, what can I do to critique this? What can I do to tear this down? But, you know, sometimes there are there's another kind of student who has been trained in a sort of a deference mm-hmm. to great works and great texts. You know, well, this is great, so I'm supposed to approve of it and, and applaud it. But, <laughs> you know, the, that's not how it works. This is, you know, you can't, you can't applaud, for instance, you can't applaud Plato and Aristotle with equal, um, uh, you know, enthusiasm because they disagreed enormously. Mm-hmm. They had they would not have seen themselves as belonging to a single tradition, mm-hmm. but rather uh, operating out of different traditions of what philosophy is and what mm-hmm. the goods of philosophy are. And so it, you, you need to be able to to weigh and assess and 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 have complicated views about works. And that's something that you need to be reminded of, whether you're the person who is prone to instantaneous critique mm-hmm. or the person who is prone to instantaneous deference. Yes, absolutely. I think one of my favorite moments um, is watching students realize, and this may seem like an unconnected thing, but watching students realize that um, that Dickens is satirical, right? I know that that seems like a very obvious thing, but I think a lot of times if you have been trained with that kind of deferential attitude, you don't realize that yeah. there's, you know, that there's humor, that there's foibles, that there's yeah. uh, things they're particularly interested in. And I think the great yeah. joy of being a reader of, 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 joining in on the long conversation of what it means to be Christian, to be a human, to live well together, is coming to engage with these thinkers as people, as people with senses of humor, and not to kind of approach every text with a kind of solemnity, um, if that's not what it asks of us. Um, that happened to me, by the way, in high school. My my high school English teacher, when when I was taught Great Expectations, <laughs> treated it with absolute solemnity, you know, <laughs> as though this is, you know, all you know, profoundly serious. And I hated the book. I I didn't see any you know value in spending so much time with this big, fat, boring book. And it wasn't until I was in college and went back and read it again that I thought, oh, my goodness, this is funny. This is supposed to be funny. Why didn't anybody tell me that it was supposed to be funny? I know. I, think... I didn't see the humor because I was reacting to, you know, I was I was following my teacher's lead and taking it with great, great seriousness. Yeah, no, I know. It's yeah, there's kind of a self-seriousness that we all take sometimes. I think um, that when you get rid of that and you realize the humor, the the hangups, it's just, it's a delightful moment. Um, I, I think I felt that with yeah. Dickens too. Dickens, or the first time you realize that Shakespeare tells a lot of slightly dirty jokes, or the first time, you know, you read yeah. Augustine and you're like, why is he so hung up on babies being selfish? Um, 
to allow yourself to respond to text as a full person responding to a full person who was writing, I think is, is a joy and is fun. So, so you say that you think that it adds to our tranquility. What do you think it is? I think we've kind of seen how this really can add to our sense of wisdom, right? Of a complicated view of the world. I think that's what's often lost now. Um, I guess before I run on too quickly to the tranquility part, I think that's what uh, I feel like is granted to me through um, being a wide reader is the sense that things often are complicated, um, that, mm. you know, we, we haven't just solved what it looks like to have um, a just society in relationship to gender. We haven't just solved what it looks like to have a just society in relationship to to race and to privilege. Um, but the kind of quickness of our world can make it feel as though, okay, well, this is exactly, we figured it out, we sorted out, now the next pressing issue. Um, when actually these things are protracted and long and complicated and they relate to each person in each society, and each, you know, what it looks like to live well um, is, is complicated. And I think that's the thing that I, um, complicated doesn't mean impossible to discern. It doesn't mean we can never know what's the right way to do something, but it means that it, it is, it takes more than just, you know, a few months to know something. Um, and I think that's something that I, I love and I want more in, in the way that we read things. Um, so that's one thing it can add. It can help us see the complexity of the world, help us see the conversations that have been happening and the different ways those are mediated. But you also say that it adds to our tranquility. Why do you think reading voices from the past add to our, adds to our tranquility? Well, I think that that's... Uh there's a there's a lot of ways in which in which that happens but mm-hmm. i think that maybe the chief one uh, that i would call attention to right now is is this that it is it's extremely anxiety producing mm-hmm. to be as i just said blown about by every wind mm-hmm. of doctrine like whenever a new issue comes up and it's like everybody is like take your side mm-hmm. you know to tell us where you stand on this silence is violence um you know speak up you it's it's incredibly anxiety producing Mm. because you're afraid you might say the wrong thing you're afraid that if you say the right thing by the lights of some people you'll be saying the wrong thing by the lights of somebody else Mm. you know you you're the the enormous amount of 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 pressure of peer pressure is just overwhelming. Mm. And we all feel that because human beings are social. We are made to be mm-hmm. social. And it's, 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 it, we're, we're incredibly tuned into, or most of us are incredibly tuned in to the responses of others and to the approval or disapproval of others. And that's, that's, there's no way for us not to be affected by that in some way and Mm -hmm. so we become anxious we become the opposite of being tranquil Mm -hmm. and when you get away from that moment by moment thing and encounter the voices from the past you're still making a human connection Mm -hmm. you're not by yourself you're in as you said earlier you're in conversation with these people but it's a conversation over which you have some control Mm -hmm. and where the stakes are not as high as they are in our day-to-day social lives. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm reading, if, if I'm reading Frederick Douglass, for instance, Mm -hmm. who is a significant figure in my book, Frederick Douglass, isn't going to like 
rise up out of the book and tell me how wrong I am. He's you not, know, he's not, he's not going to rise up and cancel you. Afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get canceled by Frederick Douglass, you know? And so, um, and so what I can do is I can read Frederick Douglass and I can think about what he's saying mm. and I can like, I can close the book and set it aside for a while and reflect on it. And mm. then, or maybe I can write down what my thoughts are mm. and then I can come back to it and, and, and read it again and have second thoughts. Mm. And I, 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 books are the, the wonderful thing about books is how, how patient they are with us, mm. that they, they, they're always there. You can pick them up and start reading them. Mm-hmm. And they are, they are very receptive to that. But if you set them down and walk away, they won't complain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they'll just wait. And, and then when you come back, they're ready. You know, they never, mm-hmm. they, they, there's a, there's a funny old Jerry Seinfeld routine about how, um, uh, about how when you're, when you're like, you know, in middle school or something like that, there's always this, this, you know, kid who wants to earn your approval mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, is always happy, like to lend you anything that he has here. You can borrow my bike here. Mm-hmm. You can borrow my, you know, whatever it is, right. Because he's trying to earn your approval. Mm-hmm. And, and Seinfeld says that libraries are sort of like that. They're like a, they're, they're like a, a publicly funded, pathetic friend, you know, like <laughs> come and come and borrow our books anytime you can borrow them. You can keep them, you know, for a while. And if you need to keep them longer, that's fine. You know, just let <laughs> us know and you can, you know, and, and there, there is that kind of, you know, that kind of humble generosity to libraries and then to books that, mm. that, you know, they're always ready to accommodate themselves to us. And that is, intrinsically calming it is Mm. something which books are incredibly powerful Mm. but we are able to we we have so much control over our encounters with them Mm. if it frustrates us we can walk away we can never pick it up again Mm -hmm. we can take a book and throw it out the the door if we want to we can put (laughs) it in the trash or we can just put it on the shelf and come back to it later or Mm. we can just devour the whole thing you know at at times like that we feel like we're so caught up that we're almost not choosing anymore Mm. but we really, we know at the back of our minds that we really do have some control Mm -hmm. over all of this. And as a result, uh, we, it, it it lowers our blood pressure, Mm -hmm. right? We, it lowers the intensity. There's not that center of anxiety. It's a human connection. It's a Mm -hmm. very human connection. It can be an incredibly powerful conversation, but it is, it enables us to deal with ideas, in our own way and in our at our own pace and that's especially important when the ideas are challenging to us Mm -hmm. or maybe even offensive to us that we can set it aside and then when we calm down come back to it and think about it and think about what our answer is to it and my view and my hope certainly is that that can be a kind of training for dealing with our neighbors Mm -hmm. who are a book is a kind of a temporary neighbor Mm -hmm. And um, I've written about this before, the idea that we should think of books as neighbors. And Jesus says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and we should do that with books. But they're temporary neighbors, and they don't vote in the same elections that we vote in. <laughs> and, um, and and so we, we, we can maybe, it's easier to develop a kind of a generosity uh, towards, towards these books. But if it's harder to develop that kind of generosity to our neighbors who do vote in the same elections that we vote in and often vote in ways that we'd prefer them not to, 
maybe we can get a little better at dealing with that by the practice of tranquility that we can have when we're reading books. Hmm. I think that is so, um, it's so delightful because as you're saying it, it sounds kind of whimsical and strange, but it's exactly true. Um, you know, a book is, you are invited to the conversation, but it's the kind of, it's a wonderful, blissful conversation for any of us who have more introverted tendencies, because once we feel that we've had too much, we can step away and consider it. Um, mm -hmm. But it is that sense of, of practicing entering into another way of seeing the world and responding to it and thinking about it, but in, in a way that isn't so instantaneous and so, so and the stakes aren't so high. Um, right. Yeah, I love that there's in Lewis's little book, um, A Practice in Criticism, he talks about how a good book demands that you kind of give yourself as fully as you can over to reading it and thinking through it and, and inhabiting its world. And I think that's something that's so rare to our normal experience of right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're always mm -hmm. in such a kind of response-oriented, swift um, world, especially with social media, that we don't often take that time to fully inhabit, um, to engage in that conversation and let ourselves think and be and ponder before we respond. It's it's almost kind of an anti-practice or, a you know, an antithesis of the practice of social media you know, where we feel that we should read and then immediately respond. And, and it's it's being able to be in a long form, gentle, non-immediate conversation. And some books aren't gentle. Some 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 book right. neighbors do demand something of you. Um, yep. But in a way that you said, like, we have we have more control and and. Um, yep. Yeah. And I think that I think that it's important. This is a uh, uh, not a theme of this current book, but it is a, a theme of my life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I've often dealt with students who really feel that if they're not reading great books, mm -hmm. then then they're wasting their time. Mm -hmm. But I, I always I love to quote something that the poet W. H. Auden said, where he said, "Masterpieces are for the high holy days of the spirit. Mm -hmm. They're they're not meant." for every day um, in the same way that you wouldn't eat a seven course French meal every day, it would kill you, right? That, um, that, and he, and Auden says that they're not for every day because they demand so much of you hmm. that a really great book is demanding. It, 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 it wants you to give a full investment of your mind and hmm. your heart and we're not up for that every single day. And, mm -hmm. you know, after we've had that kind of experience, we might want to recover by reading something just for fun mm -hmm. and something that doesn't place the same kind of demands on us. You know, whenever I get to the end of a semester, when I've been teaching a lot of heavy mm -hmm. stuff, you know, the entire semester long, I can't wait to sit down and read something that's lighthearted and that doesn't make the same kind of demands on me. Mm -hmm. I usually get, you know, I usually, uh, the first thing I do at the end of a semester is read, read a P.G. Woodhouse novel because <laughs> I know that that's going to be absolutely delightful and uh, is going to be a restorative kind of thing for me. So I think n knowing that you're not up for, in fact, if you read nothing but really great books, you're going to end up running out of the energy and the intensity and the focus that you're going to need to read them well. Absolutely. And as a result, your your eyes are going to be going over the, the, the words, but mm -hmm. you're not really going to be encountering the book in a serious way. Absolutely. And I think I love what you're saying because it relates to my PhD. Don't you feel that uh, whenever you're in a project, everything looks like a, yeah. you know, right. but um, my project is on kind of the affective practice that 
reading books or engaging with a work of art um, can can be the way that it can form our emotions. But a part of that is because every book you read asks something of you. It's not merely that you're kind of getting something out of the book, but that it's asking you to engage with it in a particular way, to pay attention to it in a particular way, to think, to be, to feel. And so I think that's really wise. And I'm I'm the same way. I love my my easy books, my like restorative books are um oftentimes mystery novels. There's just something mm-hmm. so deeply satisfying mm-hmm. about um kind of the arc, the way that it always, you know, uncovers everything. And right. um uh yeah, there's something so delicious about things that we just we need for every day. Um mm-hmm. and and not not treating those as somehow uh, worse. I, I was laughing recently. I was chatting with students and we were talking about what book they would take to a desert island. And one of them mm-hmm. said, well, I would take Anna Karenina because it's a book that I should have read. And, you know, if you're on a desert island, I guess you'd have a long, long time to read it. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Because what if you don't like Anna Karenina and you're stuck on a desert island for, you know, years having to read through these poor, you know, sad, rich Russian people's lives? Um, you yeah. know, which, of course, I say loving Anna Karenina. Um, yes. But uh, no, and I, I think... That's something I love too, and it go it boils down again to that sense of, of treating literature not as this kind of hallowed thing that we must engage with, but as as humans, what what do, what appetites do we have? What do we need? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we need on different days? And and what are the kind of authors who become our friends and and who don't? Um, yeah. So that relates to. I would love to know who who are some of the voices of the past? Maybe both. Um, the more serious ones that require a lot of you, but then also the ones that are just nourishing or enjoyable to you these days. Who are the people you mm. find yourself drawn to? Well, I, you know, my the, the the writer who means the most to me is is W. H. Auden. Mm. I've uh, I encountered his work for the first time in a serious way in grad school, and it just changed the direction of my career mm. and end up my life in a lot of ways. And he has been, you know, a, such a wonderful companion for mm. me uh, over the years and someone that I can just return to over and over again. There are things that you need for different situations. You know, mm. sometimes I really need sanity. And when I need sanity, I go to Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just we just finished in one of my classes teaching Mansfield Park. And Mm. it was just so wonderful to go back to that book again, which I think is the greatest of her novels, Mm. though not the most immediately appealing. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really wonderful thing for me. And, you know, over the last few years, um, Horace has been especially important. This kind of uh, ironic, wry, (laughs) civilized voice um, commenting on the follies of the great, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from from some distance, and mm-hmm. I, um, uh, it was the Horace is is a poet that I have always loved. Auden loved him. He really mm-hmm. thought of himself as a kind of a modern Horatian, mm-hmm. and that was how I started reading Horace. And I fell in love with his work, and I've been going back to it over and over again. I try to teach it from time to time. It's hard to get. 20 year olds to get <laughs> Horace. Um, but he's been especially dear to me in recent years because um, I, the, the person that I talked with Horace about the most, um, uh, who loved him in the same way that I love him, 
was my uh, friend uh, Brett Foster, a wonderful poet mm. and scholar um, who uh, was one of my dearest friends and um, died a few years ago at the age of 42. Mm. And I'm looking right now, I'm actually taking off my shelf because uh, I keep it right next to my um close close to me on my desk is mm. a copy of the odes of horace in in david ferry's translation mm. and it's brett's old copy and so it's full of notes from him mm. and um and uh, little scribbled pages of mm. of of reflections in his quirky little uh left-handed scribble mm. and uh, so when I pick up this book, I feel like I'm not only having a conversation with Horace, but I'm I'm having a conversation with Brett. And otherwise, mm. I can't have those um, conversations very much anymore. Mm. Um, and so um, that's why um, I both began this new book uh, with Horace, but also dedicated it to the memory of Brett. Um, mm. And that encounter with Horace... Uh, for the rest of my life will always also be an encounter with him whom I miss so much. Mm. And that is, um, that is beautiful. And I think it's amazing how books, like you said, it's, it's not only the conversation you have with the author themselves, but the way that they write themselves into your memory with the person that you first had the important conversation with my, um, and the way that, that can sustain you even when they're gone. Um, yeah, I think some of my most precious books are ones that people that I love have written in. Um, my college roommate and I used to, for each other's birthday, get a book and read through it and underline it and write things in, in it and then send it to each other for, for birthday presents. And there's, That's wonderful. Yeah, and there's something so um, wonderful about getting to inhabit a conversation with someone else that you love. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I loved I mm -hmm. loved also what you were saying about the humor and the the dignified humor of Horace. Um, mm -hmm. I think that people are, I think we undervalue humor um, and its capacity to give us perspective. I was writing recently about this, but that to, to, to laugh at something, you have to be able to kind of look at it from a distance, you know, to laugh at mm -hmm. something is to regard it in a, in a way that is, mm -hmm. is amusing, which means that you have to be able to look at it from a distance. And I think sometimes we it's hard to do that when we feel so urgent about everything all the time it's hard to gain that right. perspective and humor is something that can actually be quite pro profound because it helps us look at it from a different angle and from a distance and and horace's humor is ironic mm -hmm. and um i think i think irony gets a bad name um mm -hmm. these days because there there are really two kinds of irony that need to be distinguished from one another one is one is a, an irony that is ultimately cynical, mm. and another one is an irony that is ultimately affectionate. Mm. Um, that 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 you and this is one of the reasons why, uh, as has often been said, you can't really no one can write a great parody mm. of a writer that they don't love, mm. right? It's 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 Absolutely. never going to be a great. Uh, I think about. Um, uh, Henry Reed's parody of of the T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, mm -hmm. which is just a really beautiful parody. But you can tell from from the parody that Henry Reed knew and loved the poetry mm -hmm. of Eliot. And I often think about one of my favorite moments in all of literature comes in The Tempest when when Prospero the magician is living on this island with his with his daughter Miranda and 
people are shipwrecked on the island and she sees other human beings for the first time. Mm-hmm. She's only seen the deformed and savage slave Caliban. Mm-hmm. She's seen other human, she sees other human beings and she just cries out, oh, brave new world that hath such people in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so warm hearted and, and wonderful. And you think, yeah, yeah. You know, and then Prospero says, tis new to thee. you know uh, you know i actually know what these people are like (laughs) and uh, you know they may look wonderful but trust me (laughs) they're not all that they're just people and yeah and i just love the way that shakespeare puts those two things right next to one Mm. another you know just the the warm-hearted delight and then the irony you know Mm. which is new to thee uh and and i i I love i love that kind of you can you, you you know that that Prospero is smiling as he says it because he understands why she feels the way that she does, but she has a lot to learn about how human beings really are. And that, that kind of, of uh, comical, mm-hmm. uh, almost affectionate, uh, in that case, irony is, I think, a really wonderful thing. And Horace has so much of that. I, I think that both of those things are necessary for a healthful view of humankind, because I think we both have to have an affection for our fellow human beings and a wonder that they exist and that such people sort of exist in the world. But also, I think, like you said, just that kind of that paired with a sense of but we have our foibles and, and to be able to hold those things in tension, I think is, is the great uh, task of loving other people and loving ourselves. Um, I'm torn between two questions to ask you as we close this up. but I think I'll go for the one that I'm more personally curious about because it has to do with books and people who have never seen other people before. Have you read Piranesi? Oh yes, I have. I, I got. I, I know Susanna Clark a bit, and I got um, early. I saw. So I read it in manuscript, so um, it's. I I just think it's an absolutely wonderful book. I do too. I just loved it. What what briefly? What was your what What did you enjoy about it? Well, I think I think. I think what's really fascinating about this is that uh, without without spoiling too much, mm-hmm. you know, our, our narrator is a person who lives in what he calls the house. And it's mm-hmm. a great, magnificent um, um, set of almost endless, apparently endless rooms, um, a vast, um, uh, you know, palace almost. Um, mm-hmm. But there's nobody else in it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are lots of statues, uh, but there are uh, there's one other person that he meets. There are the remains of some people who seem to have died there. Mm. Um, and yet he feels really secure mm. uh, in the house. He feels that he belongs to it. He feels that it embraces him and keeps him safe. Mm. Um, and, you know, eh, should he ever have to go out into this larger world that he doesn't know or doesn't know that he knows, that would be a really scary thing. Mm. And I think it's I think it's just a beautiful kind of image of, among other things, it, there's, there's a lot of ways to read this, but I think it's a really, really beautiful image of, of how our interior lives can be both uh, comforting and mm. secure and familiar, but also lonely, mm. and that there is a, a there, there's a risk to going out into the world of human beings mm. um, that doesn't embrace us in the way that our interior lives can. It's a bit like Charles Taylor's picture of porous selves and mm-hmm. buffered selves, mm-hmm. is that in the house, there's a kind of a buffering, there's a kind of a, a familiarity mm. that Piranesi finds incredibly 
uh, comforting. Mm. But there's a larger world out there, much scarier, but also in in another sense, a a brave new world that hath such people in it. Mm. Yes. Oh, I I loved it. I read it. Um, I. Uh, my brother and I actually read it aloud together over the last week when I was turning in my PhD. And it is such an engrossing, beautiful yeah. human story. I have rarely um, felt such an affection for a character uh, before. Yeah. And and, yeah. and such concern for him. He's he's so good. I know. I know. <laughs> he's a very vulnerable, a very vulnerable and sweethearted person. And you want what's best for him, even when it's a little different than what he wants for exactly. himself. It's a remarkable book. I mean, it's very different than Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's so small and slight in comparison to that magnificent Baroque cathedral of a book. Uh, but I do think it's a, a small masterpiece in its own way. I'm I, glad you asked me about it. I, I, I I'm, that to happen. I'm glad I didn't mean for it to happen, but I'm glad that it came up because I was uh, it just related to that that kind of image from The Tempest. And um, no, I totally agree. But I still think that her powers of conjuring a world, you know, you have that Baroque power of conjuring it and Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell. But that's still so potent and present, I think, also in Piranesi. Well, our time is coming to a close. I feel like we could probably go on for another hour um, picking each other's brains on literary things. But thank you so much for joining me um, on this. It's been just a real pleasure. You are most welcome, Joy. It's been fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And do get a copy of Dr. Jacob's new book, 